on my first Sunday as pastor of the church that I served um, first, the first church that I served at, on my first Sunday, we got lost on our way to church. I was driving. True story. We got lost on our very first Sunday. Um, That didn't happen this morning. So we're off to a good start. If you've got your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 16. The words uh, that we'll read together will also be projected on the screen above. And if you're watching online, you'll be able to see the words of this text as well. The last chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 16. Mark 16 verses 1 through 8 is not only a record of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, it's not mostly a record of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the central event of the passage, but most of the words are about his followers. The little group of people that goes looking for him. What they're doing, what they're saying, and how they're feeling. And if we evaluate this record honestly, um, it's not very flattering. And that's not unique to Mark 16. In the whole gospel of Mark, arguably the only meritorious thing that one of the disciples does in the whole gospel of Mark is Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. That's chapter 8. That's it. That's the one thing that we can look at in the gospel of Mark regarding the disciples and say, that's good. They got it right. Everywhere else we see them struggling and getting it wrong. And that's true in the account before us this morning. And so we're just going to follow the account as it's presented to us and see what's presented for us to see and learn what we're intended to learn about ourselves and about our wonderful Jesus. Okay? Verses 1 through 8. This is the account of the first Resurrection Sunday. In honor of God and his word, let's stand for the reading of the word. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. 
And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning. We don't take it for granted at all. Thank you for the presence of others around us. Thank you for the public proclamation of the word that you have given to us, the word that you've already spoken by the Holy Spirit, presented to us by the gospel writer Mark. My prayer this morning for myself and for those gathered here, those watching online, is belief in the word that you have spoken. I pray for belief. I pray for right belief, faithful belief, and belief that leads to action. We ask for Jesus' sake and in his holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Mark presents these disciples of Jesus as struggling in four ways. And we're going to notice those four ways that they're presented as struggling. And our purpose in noticing their struggles is not to be hard on them. Our purpose is to identify with them. We're not going to be hard on them. We're going to identify with them in these various struggles. That's the first task before us. We see the disciples of Jesus struggling. How are they struggling? Well, first of all, they bought something that they didn't need. That's what we see in verse 1. They bought something that they didn't need. We see, verse 1, this, this little group of disciples bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now, that seems like a noble thing to do, doesn't it? That's a kind thing to do. Obviously, their desire was to do something helpful and honoring to the body of Jesus. It's just one problem. Jesus had told his disciples in this little group of women, they are included in his followers. We know that from chapter 15. He had told this group of disciples at least three different times on three different occasions that he would be killed by the religious leaders of Israel. And on the third day, rise. Those specific words, three times, at least three times on three different occasions. He had indicated that his death would be followed on the third day by his resurrection. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. And yet, here is a group of disciples acting as if those words had not been spoken, or at least acting like those words were too fantastic to be relied upon and counted as true. Instead of going to the tomb with anticipation of seeing him alive, they go to the tomb with the expectation of finding him dead and performing their anointing task. So the idea in the head of Jesus' disciples is, yes, Jesus said this, but... 
we're going to do the practical thing. We're going to do the thing that we think is better. We're going to do what we think we need to do. And boy, we don't have any trouble identifying with them there, do we? How often does that exact same thought manifest itself in your mind and in my mind? Yeah, I know that Jesus said this, but I need this. And it could be any number of things. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but I really need another one of these. Yeah, I know Jesus said that lust and adultery put you in danger of hell and must be dealt with severely, but I really need this experience, this relationship, this satisfaction. Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not retaliate, but I just can't let them get away with this. How easily, as Jesus' disciples, do we step on and step over the word of Christ? How easily do we let the word but follow the word of Christ? He tells us one thing and we go out and we spend our resources and our strength doing just the opposite in defiance of his word. He had indicated three times that spices would not be necessary they go out and buy spices. Instead of living by faith in his promise, they do the practical thing. They do the common sense thing. They do, in their opinion, the needed thing. And we do that too. We call ourselves his disciples, but we treat Christ like he's our disciple. Like we have to tell him what the needed thing is, as if we know better than him what we need. So let me just ask you, what are you telling yourself this morning that you need? What are you telling yourself that you need that is in direct opposition to the word of Christ? We're just taking some time to identify with the struggles of these disciples we see in Mark 16. Okay, they bought something that they didn't need. They should have known better. Secondly, they worried about a problem that they didn't have. It's what we see in verse 3. They worried about a problem that they didn't have. Verse 3 reads this way, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? That's not going to end up being a problem for them, is it? It seemed like it at the time, while they were on their way, there was this big obstacle looming out there. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to deal with the stone? But God had already taken care of it. They didn't even have to lift a finger 
didn't end up being a problem at all. That's what we find when we come to verse 4, that it wasn't a problem at all. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. It was out of the way. The huge obstacle that was out in front of them, which they fretted about on the way, was taken care of. They needn't have worried about it at all. What's on your mind this morning? What's weighing What's weighing on your mind this, this weekend? What's the big obstacle out in front of you? I've got one. I've got a big obstacle out in front of me. I'm anticipating this problem. What is it for you? It may not be a big thing. It may be a small thing. You want to know the kind of stuff that I worry about? probably time to get to know each other a little bit, okay? I worry that when I walk into a room full of people, I won't have anybody to talk to. You know what's happened every time I've walked into a room full of people? I've had someone to talk to. I worry about not having a place to sit for lunch. I worry about not having a place to park. I worry about not having enough time to finish what I'm working on to my satisfaction. I worry about potentially having to make a left-hand turn that's not protected by a stop sign or a stoplight. That's probably my biggest worry. (laughs) Now, those are small things. Those are silly things. There are bigger things that we worry about. Some of those things are on your mind this morning. Things to do with our children things to do with our aging parents, huge financial concerns, huge health concerns. Concerns regarding relationships. As we journey like these disciples in Mark 16, we think about those big obstacles out there. What are we going to do? That problem is too big for me. We're not offering solutions right now. We're just identifying with these disciples. We're just looking at this saying, yeah, this is us too. This is me. In in spite of the fact that we worship the God of Israel, the God who parted the Red Sea and made a way, The God who provided bread and quail out of nowhere in the wilderness. The God who protected the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace and they came out unsinged. The God who kept Elijah fed at the brook. In spite of the fact that we worship this God, we still worry as we journey and we do not take into account the greatness of the God of Israel. We see that happen here. Okay, they bought something that they didn't need. They worried about a problem that they didn't have. Third thing we see is that they tried something that didn't work. That's what we find in verse 6. They tried something that didn't work. When we come to verse 6, we find that their morning mission failed. They came to anoint Jesus. That was their mission. That's why they set out to go to the tomb. But they're informed by the young man that Jesus was not there. 
He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Their desire was to do something for Jesus, but it didn't work out, did it? What they set out to accomplish for him didn't happen as they thought it would. It was a noble enough desire. It made sense from a human point of view. They, they spent money and they spent energy and they got up early and they traveled some distance and in the end they did not achieve what they hoped to achieve. And it was for him. And I think one of the hardest things to deal with in the Christian life is trying something for Jesus and having it not work out. It really leaves us with this overwhelming feeling of, why did this not work out? It was for him. I did this for him. Why is it not good for this to happen? Why didn't it work? And... I know people who have left their home and spent lots and lots of money, moved their family, spent tons and tons of energy and all this time to be trained for ministry because they wanted to do something for Jesus. And then there's no position available. Or there's a, um, a health crisis in the family. Or a spouse leaves. And everything changes. And nothing goes as planned. It, it doesn't work. And you have knowledge of situations like this too. In other situations. Sometimes it's a smaller thing. We pray so hard. And for so long about sharing Christ with someone or about initiating um, reconciliation in a relationship. And then we go ahead and we do it. We take that step. But then it doesn't work. And maybe it even seems like it only makes things worse. And yet we really thought that this is what would honor God. And we're not saying this morning that there's any fault in us or in another person when things don't work out. Or that there was a lack of wisdom or discernment or faithfulness. We're just noticing these things happen in the lives of disciples of Jesus. It happens here in Mark 16. But the one thing that we can say on the basis of this text, as as hard as it is in the moment to hear this, when our plans don't go like we want them to go, the one thing that we can say on the basis of this text is that God's plan is always better and it is always best. As hard as that is to say in the moment, because it would have been the worst thing in the world for them to accomplish their mission. The worst, the very worst thing, if they had found the body of Jesus still dead, ready to be anointed. It's a good thing that what they set out to do didn't happen.
And as disciples of Jesus, we still struggle even with that knowledge, even knowing that God's plan is best. It doesn't always feel like it in the moment. That's what it was like for them. They weren't overjoyed in the moment at God's new plan. Look, they were astonished and afraid. They were astonished and afraid. And they tried something that didn't work, and we can identify with that experience too. All right, they bought something that they didn't need. They worried about a problem that they didn't have. They tried something that didn't work, finally. They received a command that they didn't obey. That's what we find when we come to verses 7 and 8. They received a command that they did not obey. They're told in verse 7, go tell. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. That's the command. Go tell. And then we read in verse 8 that they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. There's the disobedience. They received a, a command that they didn't obey. They were told to go and tell. They said nothing. I don't really think we need to spend a lot of time trying to identify with this. We know the experience of having divine command and refusing to walk in obedience. Hopefully we know that experience less and less over time. Hopefully we learn sooner rather than later that God commands but for our good. Hopefully we remember that calling ourselves Christ followers means we follow. And that calling him Lord means he is Lord, not me. Hopefully that sinks into our minds and our hearts. Nevertheless, we see disciples on the first Easter Sunday not doing what they were told to do. And that's not a foreign or uncommon thing to see. So, there are our four points of identification. There they are, the four ways presented to us in which these disciples are struggling. They bought something they didn't need. They were worried about a problem they didn't have. They tried something that didn't work. And they received a command that they did not obey. Now, I've been talking to disciples of Jesus. I've been talking to followers of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you are not a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're not even considering it anymore. Maybe the experiences that you've had with disciples of Jesus has been so bad and so harmful that you just decided that that's not for me. If that's you, I want to welcome you. And I want to thank you for listening so closely and for so long. For honoring us by your presence here. I thank you for that. And I hope I get to meet you after the service. Here's what we want you to know about us. Here's what we disciples of Jesus want you to know about us. We struggle. We are strugglers. We want to present ourselves to you the way that the Bible presents us to ourselves. 
as strugglers, as people often getting it wrong, really wrong. When we have every reason to get it right, we have been taught well. But fear and worry and failure still get to us and we struggle to be and act as we ought to be and act. And we have nothing to boast about except this empty tomb in the risen Jesus. We want to simply set forth this text in Mark 16 as entirely true. The whole thing is true. We see struggling disciples here. Yes, that is true. So true. Still true. And we see an empty tomb here. And yes, that is true. So true and still true. This is a true picture of life, both of these realities, struggling disciples and the empty tomb of Jesus are still with us today. And we plead with you and set this request before you. Please do not discount the empty tomb of Jesus because you see his disciples struggling around you. At work, at home, online, in the news in your extended family, wherever people gather, there will the disciples of Jesus be struggling in all kinds of ways. Both of these realities are true and always will be true. Disciples of Jesus will struggle to be what we ought to be and the tomb of Jesus will always be empty. The one is as true as the other. In fact, it's precisely Because humans struggle to be who they ought to be and can't be, that Jesus came and died and rose to be everything that we should have been and win the victory for us. To save struggling, sinful people like me. And we hope this passage in Mark 16 will ring true to your ears and experience that disciples struggle, but Jesus is strong. That's the great contrast in this passage. Whereas we see disciples presented as strugglers, Jesus is presented as the opposite. Presented as strong in two ways. Let's notice those two ways that Jesus is presented as strong and then we'll be done, okay? Jesus is presented to us as strong. How so? Well, first of all, his body was raised from the dead. That's what we learn in verse 6. His body was raised from the dead. Notice and appreciate the words of verse 6. If you've got your Bible, please look back at the words of verse 6 and ask yourself this question. Are there any words in existence less likely to follow the words was crucified than has risen. Are there any words in the English language less likely to follow was crucified than has risen? And yet there they are. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. Ask yourself, likewise, are there any words in existence more beautiful than you seek Jesus of Nazareth? He is not here. 
you might be wondering, why is Easter a big deal? What does it all mean anyway? Simply this. Jesus of Nazareth was submitted to the worst kind of death imaginable. He was crucified, died, and buried on Friday. And on Sunday, that crucified body was raised. Jesus came back to life. His lungs began to respirate again. His heart began to beat again. Blood began to flow through his body again. His arms moved. His legs bent. And he walked out of his tomb in that moment, winning himself the victory over the, over the unconquerable foes of sin and death. Sin and death did not have the last word. They could not hold him. The darkness could not overcome the light. We do not preach morality. We do not preach self-improvement, self-help, how to live the victorious life. We don't preach how to be a better person. We preach Christ crucified for sinners and raised on the third day, winning the victory for us. And we preach the imputed righteousness of Christ given freely to all who believe the righteousness which is by faith in his strong name. We are the scared Israelites. We are the scared Israelites standing back from the battle line, trembling all, fearful all, weak need all. At the mere sight of Goliath. Jesus is the conquering shepherd Stepping forth where no one else would go to slay the enemy and win the victory for his people in the name of the God of Israel. We struggle, but Jesus is strong. And he conquered the ancient foe, sin, and its companion, death, by rising on the third day. David crushed the forehead of the enemy by a stone slung through the air. And Jesus crushed the foe of the ancient enemy, crushed the head of the ancient enemy, the serpent, with a stone rolled away. And the victory is won for the people of God. He's presented as strong and that his body was raised. Secondly and finally, he's presented as strong in that his words were proven to be true. That's what we find in verse 7. His body was raised from the dead. His words were proven to be true. That's verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he said. Even his death could not keep his words from coming true. 
He had promised his disciples that he would see them again in Galilee, and it happened. His death couldn't prevent that from happening, just as he said. Now let's do a little bit of practical application, and then we'll be done, okay? Thinking about how his words were proven to be true, stronger than death. If you were a disciple of Jesus, remember that no matter how unlikely or impractical or counterintuitive Jesus' word seems, it can be trusted. That's the application for struggling disciples today who struggle with worrying about obstacles that are out there ahead of us, who struggle with past failures, who struggle with chasing things that we think we need, who are struggling right now with hard obediences. Remember that his word can be trusted. It's stronger than death. It is your rock. Lean into it. It will not fail you. What he has promised is true. And you will see it happen in your life. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, I want to thank you again for honoring us with your presence and your time this morning. And I'd like to close by respectfully asking you to just consider this. That no matter how unlikely the resurrection of Jesus may seem to you, there's still yet something more unlikely more unlikely than a man rising from the dead is that the word of Jesus could fail to come to pass. His word proved to be stronger than death. And this is the specific invitation and the specific promise that he has made to people who don't know him yet, to people who aren't walking with him yet. This is what his promise and invitation is to you. Matthew 11, he says to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His promise to you is rest, rest for your soul. Give him your sins. He came to take them from you. His death was for you. His resurrection was for you. He invites you to come to him, repenting of your sins and believing in his name. And his promise is rest for your soul. And then just come. Come join the company of struggling disciples. Come, come teach me something. Come walk alongside me. Yes, struggling, but also growing. And also worshiping. Worshiping our hero and our teacher and our savior and our king. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory and he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Thine is the glory, risen, conquering Son.
Endless is the victory. Thou or death has won. Amen.